here we are together again together and yet not so much yeah i feel you both though so i'm, I'm uh, gonna count it as together well that's good well who are we my name is john and i'm ron i'm steve and this is the movie schmovie podcast episode 199 we are we are <laughs> just one maybe two i don't know depends what happens episodes away from our very special 200th episode yeah, that's right. We might squeeze in another 0. Yeah. 0.5 just to be cute yeah, and just knows? to make it, uh, make them wait. So what, what brings us together tonight? Well, I think we have one big movie that we are going to talk about that is sort of the obvious movie of the moment, and that would be the screen adaptation of Stephen King's It. Yeah. But I was going to, before we jump into that subject, just see what you guys think about a couple of little news items, things that have happened in the last few days that seem like they're worth discussing on the podcast. Okay. The first one is the announcement from Lucasfilm that J.J. Abrams will be returning to direct episode nine now that Colin Trevorrow is out. Bye. Good riddance. We talked about how we sort of had this feeling of disquiet about him taking on uh, this, this Star Wars film. And now that he's gone, it did create a vacuum. It created a pretty interesting conversation about who's the sort of director who should be stepping in. It'd be great if it was a woman, or it'd be great if it was a person of color. But in the end, the choice they made to go back to J.J. Abrams, while it might seem unexciting in the terms of what I just said, I'm not a huge J.J. Abrams worshiper. I just thought he did a good job on the first one. That seems like good enough news. Then there's the news of the screenwriter he's going to be paired with, who is Chris Terrio, who co-wrote Argo, but also has a credit on such films as Batman vs. Superman <laughs> and the upcoming Justice League. Uh, is it a case of, yay, oh. Uh, Chris, I, I don't know, but well, his writing credits. So here's, here's what I always think about when I think about credits like that. Suppose you had a perfectly decent idea, right, that you wrote, you composed, it's good, on paper, but then you give it to a studio that actually ruins it, right? That's not to say that the idea was a bad idea. And I think if another director were to execute some of the writing credits that he has, maybe it would have been a better thing. So that's my positive thinking. I think J.J. Abrams will reel it in if it if it's like... And then somebody bursts out of somebody's chest. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just saying, if it gets too crazy... I think that J.J. Abrams has the wherewithal at this point. He's such an amazing storyteller to me um, that I think he has the ability to reel in something if it felt like it was a little too crazy. So I trust the process. So I don't know. But but it does make me a little scared. Not gonna lie. What about you, Steve? Um, yeah, I mean, I pretty much agree with what Ronald said. I mean, I, I don't I don't write him off immediately. I mean, I'm I'm way more excited that J.J. Abrams is involved. It would have it would have been icing on a cake if somehow. Ryan Johnson was was on board as as a writing partner for it. That would have been kind of a nice way to tie it up. Um, since it seems that Ryan Johnson has successfully worked in the Star Wars playground uh, or the sandbox, whatever you want to call it, um, with Kathleen Kennedy. Uh, to this point, there's been no drama at all with his experience um, on Episode Eight. So I don't know. It, it would have been cool to see him kind of like you know work with JJ if that was possible. But that said, he's not, and at least at this point, and uh, I don't know. I, I don't really, I don't really worry about Chris Terrio being involved. I mean, I think Ronald makes a point that's valid. Is that I mean, I, I don't know that I immediately can write off that he is what's only wrong or the only thing wrong with those movies that you mentioned. Um, 
not knowing enough about what goes on behind the scenes. I mean, it's really interesting. Like, I, I this is like kind of a like a like a side conversation or, or or whatever a detour of the conversation a little bit. But Ronald mentioning that made me think of something I was listening to today. It was like an article about. Um, like things that you didn't know about the Monster Squad, which is not related at all, besides the fact that it's an awesome movie that maybe we could talk about when we talk about it. But it was talking about how Shane Black and Fred Decker both had like writing credits on that movie and like how they never actually spent time working on the script together. Like there was one line in the movie that they both wrote together in person with one another, and the rest of it was basically passes on a script that they both worked on. So when you see a movie that like has more than one writer involved, like now and even before, I always kind of had that perception of like, do they physically see one another? You know, whose idea was what? And you only really hear about that in like really good behind the scenes or documentary pieces about a certain piece of work. But I, I don't, I don't, I don't. That that long winded little story kind of leads me back to say, Ronald is right, and I, I kind of felt that way when I read his name yesterday. And, and thinking about how I don't know that Chris Terrio is the problem with those movies. Maybe he ultimately is. But if he is, I agree that I think that J.J. Abrams and especially the Kennedy machine uh, that is at Lucasfilm is not going to allow that to be a problem. Especially if she was uh, you know, pushing back so much as a lot of the trades have been reporting on what Trevorrow had going with the script. Um, ultimately bringing in somebody else not that long ago to completely like kind of rework it with him and still not be able to kind of come to a good idea. So I don't think that that's going to happen, especially where they are in production and uh, with JJ involved. And, and more importantly, in this world, these blockbuster worlds, like the, the, the production of it, the producers behind it. I don't know. I think this kind of property that they would never allow a wild card like that to be a problem. Or at least it's not going to be a screenwriter's film, you know, in the same way that Batman versus Superman was not a screenwriter's film. Right. I always thought it seemed kind of clear. I, mean, I don't know if this is true. I don't know about the order of events, but it always seemed to me that Chris Terrio came on as like part of the Ben Affleck package from Argo. Totally. Chris Terrio may have just been someone that Ben Affleck was uh, comfortable with, you know, right, right. that he trusted. Uh, so yeah, there's no real evidence that anything that was right or wrong with Batman versus Superman is the work of any one screenwriter. I used to blame a lot of things on writing that the more I learn about the role of the screenwriter and what actually happens in the production of a film, the more I learn about that, I realize that it's very hard to pinpoint at the end of the process what was a script problem and what wasn't. Sure, sure. So I think we have to sort of give them the benefit of the doubt, but we can say it's not like a slam dunk. It's not like you said, Ryan Johnson, somebody who, for whatever reason, we all assume has done a great job on episode eight. Um, interestingly enough, I heard some... I don't know how believable this is, but I heard that part of the reason why Patty Jenkins was finally signed to direct Wonder Woman 2 for Warners, which she got this huge deal that I think makes her the highest paid female filmmaker ever for, for this one film, which is a deal to co-write, produce, and direct Wonder Woman 2. And some people are saying that the notion that she might get wooed away by Lucasfilm to direct episode 9 was a factor in uh, in warner's locking her down so to speak do you think there was any chance that she might have been lured away to some other franchise i think the idea that she may have been is is pretty pretty reasonable i mean the movie wasn't perfect but it had a structure to it that i think that all of the movies prior to it in this new dc universe lacked 
and it under the tutelage of some of the, those DC producers could bang bang out a pretty amazing sort of movie because it offered a healthy combination of action and humor and heart that I haven't seen in a lot of movies. So, I mean, I get it. And whatever it came out of, whatever, if it came out of desperation for them not wanting to lose her, as long as it happened, as long as there's a, there's a, there's a win in the column for women, especially now when it feels very imperative that a lot of companies are making kind of declarations that women voices, women's voices in the creative world are very valuable and should be used as often as possible. This is a big statement. So I'm, I'm happy about it. I don't know how you guys feel about it. I, um, I think it's a very, I mean, I don't, like you said, I don't know if it's a, if it's a rumor or fact, but it, it seems very possible and, and, and likely almost, um, Especially knowing that, you know, not so much Lucasfilm, but, you know, they had tried to get Ava DuVernay to work with uh, with the Black Panther film and trying to get a woman director in one of these big blockbuster tentpoles. And then, you know, Warner comes along and has a huge success on their hand. And honestly, not to mention, Warner has been having a pretty good year overall at the box office, especially now with it coming out. Um, it's kind of like a mixed new line Warner thing, but they're under the same kind of parent company. So there, there's like a lot of through lines to that conversation to make it seem like this could have been a very deliberate thing. Not to mention that once that got announced and uh, you know JJ comes along, that Star Wars is then being pushed back to opening within a week of what they had announced Wonder Woman 2 to be opening. I guess you can make enough in that one weekend that it's like you still win. I can't. I don't know. Like I, I feel like something's going to give a little bit on those dates. Like I can't see... I mean, it's the holiday season. Sure, there's plenty of money to be made, but I mean, both of those films, you know, the episode seven and Wonder Woman, both are films that lived off of great word of mouth and legs and repeat viewings and a long life at the box office. So, I mean, I don't know that the, you know it's a deal breaker that it's within a week. Like Wonder Woman comes out first and then Star Wars, but um, I don't know. Like I feel like there would probably be a lot of thought going into whether or not they should stick with that date, specifically with Wonder Woman. Like they may want to. You know, if, if there's an opening to open a, a few weeks earlier, maybe the Thanksgiving weekend instead. I, I don't know, but it, it, it seems like th- that would be a, 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 from my chair here in my house, I would say that seems smarter. But I'm sure they <laughs> yeah. have some, uh, you know, math genius or some bo- box office prognosticator who is like the man or the woman that knows those things inside and out uh, deciding that. But I mean, if there was any weight to that rumor that like Warner locked her down so that star, you know, so that so that Lucasfilm couldn't even come after her, it's pretty juicy that Warner then said, I mean, that, that Disney then comes back and is like, oh yeah, by the way, we're opening within a week of you, you know, it's like, it's like you know your 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 call, your 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 turn. I don't know, that's kind of like fun and juicy to me, but uh, it'd be interesting to see if they both keep their current dates. Yeah, it's interesting that that window. I just don't know that you get three or four weeks anymore to be the 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 giant at least not without any other movie that should quote unquote be giant also creeping into that space Um, which reminds me this whole idea of movies that should be giant 
did you guys he- read this story this week uh, uh, about? It seemed like a bunch of belly aching from Hollywood trying to figure out why this has been such a bad summer at the box office, mm-hmm. and they were actually trying to blame Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, and the culture of Rotten Tomatoes. Did you see that story? Mm. I saw it come up a couple of places, like a couple of different feeds I follow, but like just you know, it's different angles or different takes on that idea. Yeah, it's just such an absurd notion to me because it seems like. I mean, we've talked about how Rotten Tomatoes is a flawed judge of films because it forces the the person submitting the review to determine whether it's, uh, it's uh, binary, positive yeah. or negative. But that number, I do think, when you go and you search for a movie's showtimes, you look over there, you see the IMDb rating, I think, and you see the Rotten Tomatoes score. How much does it weigh into your decisions, uh, or, or if ever, and do you think for other people it's huge? I feel like a, a one factor into why people may use it more now and it may actually be an indicator of or at least a suggestion of what maybe they want to see is because one there's so many movies coming out now and people aren't going to aren't as uh, not as many people are going to the theater anymore to be able to tell people firsthand like the word of mouth is not as personal i don't think like in some circles some films some event films sure but i think that the rotten tomato score really can help I mean, I don't, I don't deny that it can hurt a movie like it's box office. I think there is some impact for sure, but I mean, you can look at movies like the the first, you know, the first uh, Batman vs Superman, Super Suicide Squad, like movies that can still make you know half a billion dollars and then some that have horrible, horrible scores. I mean, granted, those are franchises that people are supporting, probably regardless of the critical reception. But I think it's like a it, it's in this culture where everything has to be right now, right here. It's like the easiest way to say, give me an idea of what this movie is like. You know, like what is the quality of this movie? So it's easy to look at a number for that quick fix in this. Everything is fast. Everything's at our fingertips. Everything has to happen right now. And that's why I think it's a factor with movie going audience now, like people that are even still going to the movies. You know, even though the numbers are down um, attendance wise. Uh, I think that the idea of saying like I can't ask a friend if they you know if I should see this because maybe they didn't go like they may have went ten years ago, so I mean I'm looking for a quick way to get an idea so I don't have to read through these reviews because I'm too busy you know on Facebook or social media or doing whatever I'm doing with my life right now that I just want an idea like is this is this great is it sort of okay you know what I mean because you still get a sense of like it's not overwhelmingly great even though with a binary system but like. A movie like Get Out that like literally I think had one negative review, you know, has a 99% or something like that. You can look at that and be like, yeah, this is probably worth my time. And then a movie like the Emoji film that has like, I don't even know what that has right now, but it's very low. Um, you know, I'm probably going to miss that movie. And even if I didn't know anything about them, I can look at that number personally and say it's going to probably give me a sense of if I'd even be interested in looking more into this movie. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think it really has to do with... The way that promotion has been kind of fragmented because before we were all watching the same TV, we were all watching the same shows at the same time. There weren't quite as many things that could break up sort of our attention. But since there's, you know, so many pieces of uh, media that we can access things on, we aren't watching things at the same time. Some of us are skipping commercials. We aren't looking at the same things. The only thing that really brings people to one place media wise are these rating sites and the casual movie watcher is checking for these things a little more than we are Their Their taste isn't quite as discerning 
their feelings about things isn't quite as sophisticated. And I'm not trying to insult the casual movie watcher. It's just the truth. When I talk to people kind of in passing at work and when I'm out, when I talk about movies, they often say, like, I, I heard this was a good movie through this site. So I went to go see this movie. I don't know if they have the time or the effort or care enough to really say, oh, this is bullshit that they said this. I'm going to see it anyway. A lot of the times people are kind of deterred from going to see a movie based on a rating. I, I hear it all the time. That's what, if that if that weren't the case, it wouldn't be integrated into um, Apple Apple movies when you look on on the Apple TV. It wouldn't be listed when you look at iTunes. It wouldn't be listed when you look at these media outlets that that that, that stream these these things. There's a reason why they're there. The people live and die by those ratings a lot of times too. So, like I said, the casual movie watcher is checking for these Rotten Tomatoes ratings a little more than we are. And I think it helps them a lot more. So, I don't know. It's also really interesting and really obvious to see how much more present that rating is if it's working in a movie's favor. Like Rana was saying, yes. like it's, you know, whether it's good or bad, it's on a lot of these like checkout things, or if you're reading a review here, or you're on Apple Music, or, or on iTunes, or Fandango, all these sites. But also, what's really interesting too is to kind of talk about the film's marketing. You know, if a movie has great reviews, they will immediately put that rating all over the poster, or all over the internet ads, or all over the TV marketing promo spots. You know, like things I've seen like th come up this week and you know last week even for like the new It film. You know the you know being certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes is a badge of honor on a TV spot now, and you know they don't hesitate yeah. to throw that on every possible piece of marketing that they can because like Ronald was saying, like we both are all of us have been saying like it is like one very prevalent and you know easy to find and quick shot source of like. You know, hey, like, should I? Should, is this worth my time? Is this worth my fifteen dollars or whatever it might be? You see the score, and it's just like the it's just like the fucking scores you got back in school. Exactly. And so you totally <laughs> can go oh, an eighty-seven. I'll go see that. Um, but I don't know how I don't know how low a score would have to be to deter me from seeing a movie that I really wanted to see. Well, um, I had just one quick question for you guys before we then move on to our big movie, which is: Have you seen the picture of David Harbour as Hellboy? Yes. I don't like the mullet. No, but, but what I'm wondering is why did they make him? Wh why did they make him look basically like Ron Perlman? <laughs> that, I, that's the part I thought that the same mind. thing, man. I I actually thought I was looking at the wrong picture first. I was like, is that the one or is that something else? Yeah. Uh, oh wow! Looking at the picture now, yeah, he does look like Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman looks a lot like Hellboy. I don't know. That's not a good or a bad sign about the movie. The much worse sign to me is the mullet. Uh, but maybe maybe that doesn't look as bad in in other shots but that that shot makes it look like he's like one of those guys who's bald on top but he's kept his hair in the back you know it just doesn't look good yeah i mean i'm in i'm, I'm interested all right well i guess we're going to talk about the scary clown that's been lurking in the corner of this podcast the whole time what did you think of it ronald it okay so in terms of adventure and action and scares and stuff like that this movie i haven't watched a movie that made me feel like this since I saw Goonies. There's something about the feel of this movie, and this is even in, including Stranger Things, 
there's something about this movie that had a edge to it that Stranger Things didn't have have in terms of the dialogue that the kids were having. That reminds me a lot of my friends when I was a kid. The way we used to just ride our bikes around and curse at each other and talk about each other's moms while creating chaos. Not not this level of chaos, but chaos. It was beautifully shot. It felt very good. There weren't very many parts that felt too slow to me. Um, it's probably one of the best. I, I mean, I don't know if I consider this a horror. I say thrillers with horror elements that I have seen in a really long time. It is... I don't want to call it a perfect film because it, no movie is perfect, but I put it up there as one of the best movies I've seen in a very long time. So that's that's how I feel up front. What about you guys? I, I mean, I'll say I, I pretty much mostly agree with what you said. I mean, I, I also thought it was um, uh, really kind of captures that the that that time of your life like you're talking about the goonies and i mentioned the monster squad earlier those are movies that definitely come to mind and obviously stranger things um but like kind of really kind of tapping into a lot of the that innocence that part of your childhood that stephen king writes about a lot and that he even really kind of really did in uh the body or stand by me um but yeah, it just it just it, it was a great great experience for me. Um, I love the film. I do have my you know nitpicks about it, but they're pretty minimal and really don't impact my feelings with the movie overall. Um, but I I really do think they did a really great thing with the casting. Um, I think this group of kids really works uh, extremely well. Um, I love the way that the town of Derry is worked into the film as as a character. Um, and there's so many subtle things in the backgrounds of the shots um some of the blocking some of the parents some of the adults in the town just a lot of little things that the more the movie sits with me i, I think about and even subtle things that um bill skarsgård does with the character of pennywise that um i have come to appreciate a lot more since since leaving the theater now that it's been able to sit in my mind a little bit and i've been able to talk about it a little bit um but overall, I think it works wonderfully, and, and I agree. It's one of the better. Uh, it's definitely one of the better experiences in a theater I've had in a, a while. Um, and any movie that makes me kind of hold the armrest a little tight, kind of gives me a good scare here and there, but then also almost makes me cry a little bit at a few scenes. Um, I think is doing something really, really special, and I think that's really. Um, speaks to um, what worked so well with the novel it and a lot of the stuff that Stephen King has done that that really deals with um, that transition from childhood into adulthood or the loss of innocence especially when it's being uh, filtered through some sort of terror or some sort of fear experience and uh, I don't know I just think the movie works so well when you think about it like that and uh, yeah we can talk about it more but what about you John what do you think um, before I forget, I wanted to just mention when you were talking about the little moments and bits from the background that have stuck in your mind, uh, uh did you notice the librarian? Yes. Oh my God. So fucking good. The way she just kind of goes and stands in the background and yes. is like hovering there almost like she's ready to pounce or something, but she's out of focus. And then I think in the reverse shot, I want to see it again because I think in the reverse shot, the librarian's in the background of the other shot and it makes you realize that the librarian that brought him that book was not it's the library. Pennywise. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Absolutely, uh, yeah. I love Stephen King, but I didn't go into this movie going, 
this has got to be just like the book. I knew it wouldn't be because of the way they divided up the story. But as far as going into it with a lot of knowledge of this thing and a lot of appreciation for it and memories of being a teenager and reading this book, I think I was about 13 when I read it. Stephen King constructs a moment full of dread and 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 he puts you in the character's head so well. The psychology is so well worked out. He has certain kind of tropes that he falls back on. Like he's always got these maniacal bullies, just the meanest yeah. bullies in the world yeah. are in Stephen King stories. <clears throat> but um, so I had a lot of opinions about it going in. And it's not like I was judging it against the book or expecting it to replicate the book. But I did have to sort of process it afterwards. So I came out of the movie with my nitpicks kind of in the foreground of my brain. And as I've thought about the movie, the nitpicks, it's kind of what you said, Steve. They're sort of, they're all sort of adaptation related nitpicks, things where I was having to immediately deal with what this movie's actually doing. And I would say that if I have a blanket criticism, it's that I think for a two hour and 15 minute film, that could have been a three hour film, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. it, it does a lot. Yeah. It does a lot. It establishes the town. It establishes seven characters and gives each of them like a big scare scene where they're kind of on their own. I think I felt like the rhythm of that was a little, you know, it was so propulsive and so much of an adventure film almost that I didn't get to really slow down and feel the scares and feel the dread and feel the moments of wondering what's going to happen and and being kind of weirded out. It was more exciting and fun to see the way, honestly, just they threw a budget at a horror film. So you get to see effects that look good. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much that made me happy <laughs> just to be watching a horror movie where the effects look good. <laughs> um and it's not like they're trying to hide anything. And I actually read where Andy Machete, who was also the director of Mama, he said that even in that film, he had this philosophy of once you've shown the monster, don't try to hide it. Don't be sneaky about it. Just once you've shown him, have the monster be in the movie like anyone else is in the movie, you know? Right. Wanting to have that visceral thrill that I got reading the book from the movie, I do think it fell short for me in that zone. I still think it's a horror film. I still think it qualifies because it's got all the elements and it's got a little kid uh, with his arm chomped off, you know, uh, that a lovable little kid who did nothing wrong with his arm chomped right. off. <laughs> so I think that it's like the movie does not pull punches. As you said, Ronald, the dialogue was that extra shade harsher. I don't know that I liked hanging out with kids like that. I don't know. Maybe we wouldn't have gotten along when we were when we were uh, in that age group. But, um, but I, I still found it very natural. So whatever complaints I have about it... Very similar to your take, Steve. They don't really diminish my overall opinion of what they were able to achieve with this movie. And it's no surprise to me that audiences are loving it. Oh, yeah. Um, it had, I think, an even bigger opening weekend than Wonder Woman, which was sort of a huge success story of the summer. So, yeah. um, no, I think it's uh, I think it's really interesting. And I'm really excited about, about uh, part two, especially now that they've had this huge success. It kind of gives them carte blanche to, I would say the justification to hire a great cast. Oh, totally. Yeah. Who would you cast in the second one? You don't have to cast everybody, but just any <laughs> characters that come to mind. Um, I feel like John, you and I were texting about this. I think that the, one of the things that comes to mind first is the Bev character. I think that it'd be great to see Jessica Chastain, uh, as the adult version of her, um, her or Amy Adams. But I think Jessica Chastain is the, is the better choice. And, and the more, uh, realistic one, I think, because she does have a, a history with Andy Machete uh, from working uh, with him on Mama. 
Um, I think I think uh, uh, Chastain is a great choice. However, when someone mentioned Amy Adams, and I I thought about the way Bev looks, I was like, you know, she actually might look a little bit more like she Amy does. Adams than she, she looks like Jessica Chastain. She's, but yeah, I think the Chastain, the the connection with the director, and I I you know I love Jessica Chastain. I wouldn't complain about either one of those actresses being in the film, and I yeah. think they both would be fun to see in that context. I read I saw somebody say, and I think maybe you and I have talked about this, John, but seeing Adam Scott cast in that as uh as Richie, I think would be awesome. Um, even who he, even even who Finn Wolfhard picked, like in his interviews, like I think he mentioned Bill Hader. I think that would even be cool. Oh wow, Bill Hader would be great because you know, um, well, the career that uh, Richie has as an adult would fit with right, with yeah, totally. Bill totally. Hader's strengths, but yeah, it is interesting to picture that cast. I picture, yeah, Adam Scott seems good. Bill Hader seems good. Um, I was trying to think. Who would play? Who'd be a good person to play Mike? But no one really jumped to mind. Sterling K. Brown. Okay, yeah, that would work. <laughs> oh. Just because I love him and want him and everything. Yeah, he's incredible. Yeah, especially having read um, what the director had. I don't know if you've read some of this stuff about how what his plans were for Mike uh, in the sequel. Like, there's some darker uh, stuff for Mike in the sequel. It seems like versus or as compared to the book. I don't know that it actually happened, but he mentioned something about like, you know, how Mike will we'll have like basically a substance abuse problem, oh. like from being from be, from still being in Derry and trying to like figure out and and being the one that still remembers it. In the book, Mike was sort of in the bin role of being right. Right. the the sort of the guy who was obsessed with the local history, you know, and I thought that was something that was very odd that they took away from Mike. They also sort of stripped out a lot of the, I mean, I guess I can see why, but it's a little bit odd that they completely stripped out the racism that is just rampant in the book with uh, Henry Bowers and his gang. Um, It's just strange that they removed that entirely from the film at the same time as taking away Mike's kind of driving character trait that made him interesting. So to me, the Mm. fact that they're in the second movie planning on making him a, a junkie is a little bit like, what? Uh, at this point, until I see that second movie, it seems like they've made unnecessary changes to Mike's character that that sort of reduce his importance uh, to the group in a strange way. Mm. Right, right. I think a lot of things would have been solved if they had just made this a television show instead of a movie. <laughs> then it could have had all the time in the world to kind of explore some of these characters and spend a little bit more time in their in their skin. I think that they did a pretty good job of setting up all seven kids in, in general. Yeah. I feel like, uh, like the only things that like, when I say a couple of the gripes that I had, like just to put them out there, I mean, I think that, that what you just said about Mike kind of taking a little bit of his characterization away. I, I, I don't know that I, like, I don't get it. Um, I think it kind of thins him out a little too much. And I feel like also the same thing goes for Stan. I feel like, those two characters probably feel the 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 leanest to me, and I mean, I think they are sort of they are sort of that way in the book too. Um, mm. And actually, John, you mentioned earlier like some of the effects that actually was some of the other stuff that I kind of was a little uh, not a fan of. Um, some of the CG stuff really kind of like kind of just bothered me a little bit. Like I didn't think it was horrible by any means, and I mean, this is a movie that cost thirty. 5 million, I think it was at the budget. Um, but some of the sequences, um, like in the sewer with Patrick and, um, I think the leper scene, like some of the shots of the leper scene with Eddie, um, 
and a couple of the Pennywise moments, like there was just like kind of like some of the scenes where I would have loved to have seen a little more practical effects if it was possible. I just feel like it wouldn't have looked as obvious to me and it would have just kind of worked so much better for the film. Um, especially kind of viewing it as a movie taking place in 1988, 89. Um, I, I would have loved to not like felt like I was watching a little too much CG. And I remember feeling that way about Mama, like not really liking the CG in Mama a whole lot. I just accepted that that was kind of the template of the film is that they were doing these sort of big, bright, sort of spooky moments that kind of jump scares and this brightly colored clown running at you, you know, as opposed right. to maybe what would have paid off more, which would have been more slowly delivered uh, scenes yeah. that, that they do get to play out where you get a sense of the room and you get a sense of what's going on. I felt like all the scares were kind of amped up and it, it's, it's part of what gives it that adventure feel. But I know I agree. I think it would have been much scarier, even though I admired the sort of the effort they put into making this movie look good. I think that, uh, yeah, I think you kind of have to accept a certain level of CG, and I don't know that it, I don't think Mama bothered me as much as it bothered you. I do agree yeah. it looked very fake, but there's something about the way that it moved or the way that it was designed that uh, that I was able to appreciate the creativity of it. And I think that was the other thing about this is Pennywise wasn't scary to me, but I loved how weird they made him. I love his eyes trying to look in different directions, and I I love what a bizarre weirdo he was. And when you realize he's this alien creature that's trying to act like a clown, trying to act human, but he's but he's not human you know there's there's something wrong with him yeah there's 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 like a couple scenes where like i think ben's scene like in the in the in the book racks in the basement like at the library like the way that character almost moved like kind of stop motiony like even though it's obviously yeah. cg i kind of feel like that played nicely like that didn't like that kind of thing didn't bother me like I, the things that I, I i just more so think about some of the stuff like with patrick in the sewer like I, I like the idea of kind of like making it like, you know, like the, basically like these zombie kids. Cause I feel like in the eighties, you know, late eighties, especially like zombies could be something that a, a, a teenager could be scared of, but just the way they looked kind of was kind of underwhelming to me, like, or a little just kind of cookie cutterish to me. You mentioned like the whole point about the way they approached Pennywise as being like this not human thing, like this alien, this entity. <clears throat> there was one scene in the movie I just wanted to give kudos to that I really like, I mean, it's an iconic scene. It's the opening scene with Georgie in the sewer and, and trying and just talking with Pennywise. Um, there's a moment in that scene, you know, you can see the eyes like, you know, that you mentioned, John, like where one's kind of uh, looking at Georgie and one's kind of almost like looking at the camera. It's really kind of discomforting to watch, but there's a scene when he's talking to Georgie where you just kind of see him go blank and he's like, just letting you like there. He's just kind of drooling. Um, like he's, yeah. he's basically lost like all empathy, like for this character or for, for trying to be like this human, uh, character. And he just kind of like goes like black. He just like blanks out and he's smiling and everything and playing along and got the voice going. And then he just kind of blanks out and it's just like kind of staring at him like a piece of meat mm -hmm. and he's just drooling. And then you see him snap back into like quote and in, into this character and um, that scene was fucking great. Like, I love that that specific thing, like talking about letting these things play out. You know, some of the the character of Pennywise, like, you know, when he's on screen, sometimes he's, he's talking, sometimes he's not. And just being like imposing. And, and that moment to me, like within the first 10 minutes of the movie starting, just kind of set me up really well to be excited to see what they were doing with the character. Because 
that like void of personality, that, that void of engagement, the void of any kind of relation to or connection to the conversation was amazing. And like it, it creeped me out like right away. And I, I loved the what they did with that scene. That's actually one of the creepier moments of the movie. Pennywise kind of stopping and snapping out of this impersonation of, of, a, of a humanoid creature that he's only doing so well, you know? And I think about that trait of him being kind of fallible. Throughout the thing, you realize that he is this creature that has all this awesome power, but he also has, you know, he's a guy who lives in the sewer and he uses this power to make kids afraid and he can feed on their fear. They taste better to him if they're afraid. Um, But he's still a guy you can go down and beat the shit out of, you know, if you've got enough people. Right. Uh, My my wife, Erin, she's like totally on the it train. When I was walking upstairs tonight to record this, she had a, a a single red floating balloon in the hallway of our house to try to fuck with me, and uh, <laughs> and that and that and that's 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 why I married right. her. Obviously, well, there's a there's a red uh, sort of beach ball in the corner of the basement that I you know I won't I won't say when I'm down here working late at night I don't kind of cut my eyes over there to make sure that it doesn't start floating up out of the chair. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you think that? They can resist franchising the shit out of this if if they have a hit on their hands and then they have a sequel that makes a lot of money. Do you think then we get the the equivalent of like Annabelle and that sort of thing? Do you think we get the Pennywise prequel? Do you think we get little offshoots if they see they've got a, a monster here, or do you think they they tell the story and they're done in two and they treat it with some respect? I hope they're done. <laughs> I mean, me too. I think there's plenty of other Stephen King properties to to mine again or to go after again or to redo or to to, to do for the first time. I mean, I think what's so beloved about the story is that it is—it's uh, a really well-written book, and it's—it's it's probably one of his, if not the best book, you know, or at least what most people reference. It—it's it, you know, it's a lot of it's time, it's The Shining, or it's it, or it's Pet Cemetery are, are usually the ones that I hear people saying. So I mean, like, misery is also one I would I would throw on the pile. Yeah, misery, misery, sure, sure. It's it, it's hard, but I mean, I, I would only say I hope they didn't. Because it is it is a it is a it is a really well contained story, and if it's done properly in the second half, it could be this amazing horror you know story you know. And if they put out like a director's cut of the movie, maybe one day where it's both back to back, and show it that way or something, that would be an amazing experience for me and something that I've been wanting to see since you know like you know it came out in the mid '80s and I saw the miniseries and then I read the book that year and I'm just like. I want to see that done better, and you know, it's it's half of it, half of it's there right now, and I would love to see it just be finished properly and and let that be its thing. And you know, if they're on the if they're on the horror train or this property or whatever, do some of his other stories better or properly, or you know, with with the attention and budgets that they maybe deserve or the storytelling that they deserve. I think we're in a sort of a Stephen King moment right now, don't you? Totally. Oh, absolutely. But no, I'm I'm totally on the hook. I can't wait to see what they do with the next one. Oh, I can't wait. I know. Two years. <laughs> two years, man. Damn. I'll be two years That's a older. Long term. Fuck. I'll be almost at the age of the characters in the movie. Right. Which Losers Club member are you? What do you, what about you, Ronald? Anybody come to mind? Um obviously Mike. But the what's the kid's name? The one with the glasses from Stranger Things. What the hell uh, is his name? Richie's Richie? the character. Richie. Name. Richie. Richie's Richie's jokes reminds me of a period where I just made sex mom jokes with my friends for like a good year. So mean, I, I can relate to You mean like this last year, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, I can, I can vouch for that. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, Ronald, yeah. I really related to Richie, too. I mean, I had that Hawaiian shirt. You know what I mean? Like, I was some unholy mixture of Richie and, and Ben. That would have been me. Because I would make the jokes to protect myself, Ronald. But then I would write you a poem. Or I'd copy some song lyrics down on a gum wrapper or something. Ah. Stick it in your pocket. You know, kind of creepy when you think about it. But at the time, it was very creative. Right, right. So what about you, Steve? Did you mention which, which character you relate to? <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely, definitely a lot of Ben. I mean, also because I was a fat kid and uh, I had inverted nipples also. Um, <laughs> but uh, so Ben and probably probably a mixture of Ben and uh, I don't know. I guess a little little bit of Bill probably. I mean, those two yeah. um, would probably be the ones I'd fall towards. Also, you love the new kids. So, I mean, that was a perfect I, I love the new kids. So, I obviously... <laughs> yes. I was a fat kid who had new kids on the blocks posters and... You know, used to draw shit all the time. So that would that be a nice combination of those two guys. So, so when you were, let's, I'm picturing your room, and I'm picturing Ben's room in the film. You had the the new kids poster. Did sure. you also have like a research project that was ongoing where you had stuff stuck to the wall way higher than you could possibly reach without some kind of step ladder? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And do you think that would have bugged me if I went into your room and I saw that? And that, Do you think that would have stuck in my craw just a little bit? Because <laughs> it did. But I let it go. Thank you. Thank I you. did think like they just needed to show the rolling ladder in the corner. It, it, if they just had cut to a shot where I was like, oh, that's how that little guy got up that high and stuck his stuff <laughs> up the wall. Ronald, what was the most embarrassing poster you had on your wall when you were a kid? I mean, my, my posters that I had up were uh, Shaq and Jordan. So, um, I'm trying to think, did I have any weird ones? No, no, not really. I had Shaq and Jordan. Those were my only posters I had up. I did have this, I did have this drawing that my, my uncle did of my sister and I, that whenever somebody saw it, they always questioned it. They're like, why would you have a picture of yourself (laughs) in your bedroom? That was always something people made fun of. So maybe that's it. The, the. The painting of my sister and I that people always used to make fun of. Oh, man, the most embarrassing picture or poster? Well, you know, like I'm thinking of the moment where Ben is busted with the New yeah, Kids poster yeah, and then yeah, he gets yeah. to kind of conceal it. Like, what was the equivalent of that for you? Did you have anything that you didn't want someone to see? Or that just that you look back on now and you go, what was I doing with that <laughs> up on my wall? I mean, I mean, there was probably some like hot chick, like, you know, some really stupid looking like posed photo of some model on my wall you know like i i feel like there's still one in my parents basement that i I'm, i always see and i'm like well one why is that still up and two uh what was the idea behind that photo like you know it's like somebody right. wearing clothes that don't match the setting and you know like weird shit like that probably um mm-hmm. but i i don't i don't i don't have any shame in my game like i i absolutely had new kids posters right. i had all the boy bands um had a lot of x-files posters which you know I'm very proud of, um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I have like a lot of shame, but I do feel like I could look back on some of those like the quote unquote hot chick photos, and I'm just like, that's a weird fucking picture. Like, why was that? Why was what was the thought process behind that one? I had like a, a shirtless Indiana Jones poster, and then you know, uh, right. uh, I guess I thought it was a badass poster of Wolverine. Sure. Uh, and uh, I guess that could all be seen as very homoerotic, right. except for the fact that I also had a couple of Freddy Krueger posters. So 
I don't know what was going on <laughs> with me. I don't know. Is there anything else? Uh, that's, I mean, go see it. It's going to be, uh, you know, a shot in the arm, I think, for the genre, which is exciting. So it's it's good stuff. As always, you can find us on your podcast platform of choice. Um, we should be there. If we're not there, tell us so that we can find out how to get there because we definitely want to be there. Because um, if you like it and that's what you use, that's where you should be. Um, you can visit movieshmovie.com or also facebook.com slash movieshmovie. Any suggestions for episodes? Tell us what you thought of it. Uh, we'd love to know, uh, you know, if you hadn't seen it prior to listening to this, um, what you think of it after you see it. And if you already have, just send us a message as soon as you listen to this. Tell us what you thought, what your dream casting ideas would be, or, um, you know, if you have any cool ideas for what direction they could go with it chapter two we would love to hear them um and do you guys have anything else to add before i send this out i don't think that's it cool guys well as always you've made our day take care bye